Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this event at the virtual LSE, the Productivity Puzzle, Can Diversity and Inclusion Unlock the Key to Growth? I am Grace Lorden, an associate professor here at the London School of Economics. I am the founder of the Inclusion Initiative at the London School of Economics and also author of Think Big, Take Small Steps and Build the Future That You Want. Um, I want to wish a happy International Women's Day to all of the women celebrating International Women's Day tomorrow. And also a big thank you to their allies for helping them when they come up against obstacles. And I also want to give one shout out to an amazing woman at the London School of Economics, Erica Broadnock, for her new book, Better Venture, Improving Diversity, Innovation and Profitability in Venture Capital and Startups. It's a book that I am reading at the moment. I'm three quarters of the way through. It's a real eye opener and it really changes the narrative about opportunities for black talent and for women when it comes to entrepreneurship, away from thinking about a pipeline problem and really thinking about how we need to do things differently to release opportunities to people who are lacking opportunities, but not lacking skills, talent and ability. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to be hosting this event simply because this is our third time trying to host this event to celebrate a new project, which is a joint collaboration with the London School of Economics, UCL, IFS, Warwick and Sheffield, which really is looking at the link between diversity and productivity. So we're going to talk lots about that today. If there's anybody who is there who wants to keep in touch with the project, please do check out our website, which is www.diversityandproductivity.com. There are lots of ways to get involved in the project and some you'll hear about today, some that you mightn't, but you can sign up to a newsletter there and you'll hear everything about the project from here on in. We are really grateful to the ESRC UKRI for funding this project um, and for allowing it to happen. And with the spirit of the project, today I have a diverse panel to come and speak about it. So I have academics that range from economists, psychologists, sociologists, and we also have, which is really important to us, somebody representing industry. We might be able to do rigorous research, but we're also hoping to do very relevant research. So we will be asking our industry partner today whether or not we're hitting that spot. But with no further ado, I will introduce my amazing panel. So in alphabetical order, Dr. Claire Crawford is an Associate Professor of Economics in the UCL Centre for Education Policy and Equalising Opportunities and a Research Fellow of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. And she's also my partner heading up the Diversity and Productivity Project. So welcome, Claire. I'm looking forward to questioning you today on what's going on in the project. Second is Belton Flournay, who is a Managing Director in Protivities Technology and Digital Consulting Practice and founder of Protivities UK's LGBT plus group, which won Best Network in 2019 by the Inclusive Tech Alliance. And he's also on the advisory board of the Inclusion Initiative at the LSE. Welcome, Belton. And next we have somebody from inside the LSE. Dr. Ali Areo is a sociologist and an assistant professor in the Department of Methodology. And she's also heading up one of the projects on the diversity and productivity grant that we're going to speak about today. And last, but definitely not least, Daniel Jollis, my colleague in the Inclusion Initiative, who is a researcher in behavioral science and also a psychologist. So welcome everybody. I'm really looking forward to discussing the project here with you today. So Claire, I'm going to put to you a question that I often get asked. Why do we need a project on diversity and productivity? Don't we know already that diversity already enhances productivity? 
Thanks, Grace. It's great to be here. I think you're right that we do already know some things about the links between diversity and productivity. We're not starting from a a zero evidence base. For example, there's been work that shows how much gender diversity matters at board level, for example. So we know that some aspects of diversity are really important. But actually, the evidence doesn't all point in the same direction. It doesn't look like diversity automatically leads to greater productivity in all firms or in all teams within firms. So what we're really going to be trying to do in this grant, as you well know, is to try and get under the skin of this mixed picture a little bit better. So try and explore the circumstances under which greater diversity leads to higher productivity And really think carefully about how businesses can kind of recreate the situations in which they reap the greatest benefits. We're also going to be looking at more dimensions of diversity than are often considered, including socioeconomic background, for example. And we're going to be thinking really carefully about how we can engender greater diversity in firms as well from everything from recruitment and progression policies to things that happen even before people start thinking about access in the labour market, like education and training. So we're trying to take a really kind of wholesale look across a number of different dimensions, both within firms and actually before people even think about going into work. So if we're sitting here in five years time, Claire, and everything has worked out and changes have been made at school level, in the workplace, what kind of changes can you imagine coming about from the research that we're doing right now? So I think that it's a wonderful world in which we would think that our research is all going to have kind of immediate impacts. That would be fantastic if it were the case. I think what we'd see is a more diverse range of individuals getting the types of qualifications and skills that we know businesses already value at the moment. So we get a more diverse kind of pipeline coming into firms. We'd have firms thinking more carefully about how they recognize and value talent, both when they're recruiting individuals, but also when they're thinking about how to progress different people through the labor market and the support that they offer. And I guess we'd also think about how firms and individuals can think about really harnessing the benefits of diversity. How would their team practices change? How might individuals' behavior change? How might people be able to work together better to make sure that diverse colleagues are included and that the kind of benefits of those different perspectives and experiences can help businesses to grow and flourish? Fantastic. And Belton, given what Claire has just said, do you share her perspectives coming from industry? Yes, I do. But I think one of the important things for organizations and leaders to have is some sort of transparent and consistent framework. I think we all know it's a good thing, but I think we sometimes are looking for something to validate the comprehensiveness of that. I'll give an example. The FTSE Women Leaders, they just announced that they've hit 40% on women boards as of 2022. When they started tracking in 2011, it was only 9.5% on women who were on the boards. And one of the things they speak about quite openly is until they provided that objective framework to allow organizations to, one, understand where they're at, two, understand what their targets should be, progress was much slower. So what I really hope this can drive is some transparency across organizations to allow them, one, to understand where their starting point is, but then they can understand where they're going, and then they can get some objective framework to continuously assess themselves against that through some fact-based research on the benefits to their organization. 
Fantastic. And kind of as a follow up question, Belton, I know some people have been getting frustrated with governments and the progress that they've been made in bringing out policies that will allow inclusion of diverse talent across the workforce. And some of those voices have actually suggested we should rely more on companies to bring these changes. You know, we have some extraordinarily large megastar firms now in the economy that if their minds were changed, could ultimately change something that's happening in society. Do you kind of identify with that, that industry might be a place that can evoke change much faster than relying on policymakers and governments? Yes and no. Um, Personally, I felt the benefits. I work with FTSE 100 companies. I work in a global managed risk consultancy. And I used to think, you know, if we can change these organizations, we're impacting millions of lives around the world because they represent the largest. But what I'm starting to care about more and more are all the other people, all the other SMEs that exist out there that will not see change unless government intervenes. And so, yes, corporates have a fantastic role to play that can impact so many people's lives. However, if we're not also focusing on government, if we're not also focusing on policy, then all of a sudden we're completely ignoring a large set of people that potentially need our help more than the corporates that are already investing in some of these programs. Yeah, it's a great answer. And I can see some questions are already coming in. If I could really encourage the audience to put in questions as we go, and we will have lots of time for them very, very shortly. So please do start asking questions now. Alia, can I get you to describe a little bit the project that you're leading on the diversity and productivity grant? Sure. Thanks, Grace. So I'm a sociologist. And one of the things I do is I use qualitative methods, so methods like interviews, uh, participant observation, and so on, to really understand how people experience, in my case, working life, their working life. And the way that that feeds into this broader project is that the component I'm leading is a very large study of uh, where we'll be interviewing 200 individuals in a variety of sectors and sort of diverse along various dimensions. So one of the things that Claire mentioned that I'll just pick up on is that we're really kind of conceptualizing diversity in a pretty broad way here and going beyond the traditional conceptualizations that have focused on gender and race. What that means is that we are paying attention to, for instance, neurodiversity. We are paying attention to kind of gender being on a spectrum. We're paying attention to sexual orientation. So we are being quite innovative in that regard. And what that means for the interviews is that we are doing these interviews with people who kind of fall or identify in different categories along race, gender, sexuality, neurodiversity, and so on to understand their work experiences with a focus on when are the moments that they felt productive, what has helped them be productive at work, and when are the moments they felt sort of hindered in their productivity, what has been sort of going on at work, who has been around them that sort of hindered it. The idea here is that, again, getting the sort of on-the-ground experience, it helps us anchor our kind of theoretical models a little bit more with actually knowing people's experiences. I feel, Alia, and for the person in the audience who asked the question, how do you define diverse colleagues, that you've answered that incredibly well with the response there. And I think the response that Alia gave is consistent across the entire project. We're really moving diversity beyond gender and race to look at aspects of visible and invisible diversity that aren't usually studied in the literature. So, Daniel, if I can move to you with this same question, actually, what project are you leading on this grant? Great, thank you, Grace. So yes, here at the Inclusion Initiative, I'm co-leading with um, our fabulous colleague, Teresa Almeida, a mass online experiment in team productivity. So essentially what we want to do is we want to partner with leading organisations and we're recruiting thousands of professional workers from key industries and then we're going to get them online and we're going to get them to participate in a team. And really what we're trying to do with that is we're trying to quantify directly the link between diversity, inclusion and 
improve productivity. So we've got a really cool experiment planned. And at the end of that, what we want to be able to do is give some evidence around interventions, some steps that organisations and leaders can take to strengthen both inclusion as well as performance. So we're kind of asking the question, well, what is it that enables online teams to work better together? What are the actions we can take to improve performance? So after this online experiment, I think the second thing is really what um, Belton referred to, which is the facts. So how do we take this research back into the companies that work with us? How do we measure the real world outcomes of that? And I think, um, you know, the reason why we're doing this project is because we all want to see the business case for diversity is realised and we think that inclusion is a really important part of that. So we're putting it to the test and hoping to deliver those. Um, those are quantifiable steps and measures. Fantastic. And I should say that the experiment that Daniel just described will take about an hour and is fun. I think that's fair to say, Daniel, that it's been created in a way that will be actually fun for people to do. So if there's anyone listening who is interested in being a part of that and who works in a company that could supply some employees, please do email tii at lsc.ac.uk. We would love to hear from you. Claire, can you give a similar overview of the projects that you lead and maybe also Arun's work on promoting economics in schools? Yeah, sure. So we've heard from Alia and Daniel about projects that are going to focus on what's happening inside firms, what changes we can make once people are through the door to try and support greater diversity, both for individuals and for firms. So myself and my colleagues, Lindsay McMillan and Jill Wynis at the centre that I'm based in, are leading three other projects which are going to contribute along a similar theme. So one is thinking about how much it matters for business outcomes that worker skills are well matched to the job that they're doing, as opposed to being kind of relatively under or overqualified. The second is thinking about um, a worker's own productivity and whether they are affected by having the opportunity to work with other highly qualified and skilled individuals. And the third is focusing on the impact of firms' progression and performance management policies on the diversity of workers at different levels within, within the firms. Um, so then we have a kind of second strand of work, which is thinking more about how we can engender greater diversity in the people who are going into a particular firm. So I guess moving away from what's happening inside the firms to thinking about things that may affect firms' recruitment strategies, for example, to recognise more diverse talents, but also to think about how we can affect policy and practice in ways that mean that more individuals from diverse backgrounds end up with the qualifications and skills that firms are looking for. And we've got kind of three projects that are trying, trying to tackle this. So one is is trying to understand better the different trajectories that individuals from different backgrounds are taking through education and into the labour market, really trying to get under the skin, as you mentioned, of how these vary across a, a wide range of diverse um, groups and across areas of the country as well, and trying to use that to identify points on these pathways through which we could usefully in potentially intervene to help ensure that individuals are able to select the pathways that are best suited to them and the most productive pathways that are available to them if they wish to take them. 
The second is really focused on the university application process and thinking quite carefully about um, how changes could be made to that system, both on the side of student decision making, but also on the side of university decision making that could try and promote greater diversity on certain um, kind of high return courses and therefore promote um, more social mobility or more, more mobility for diverse individuals. And the third one um, is the one you mentioned that Aaron Advan, that one I just described about universities is being led by Dr. Jack Britton um, from IFS. And the third one, which is being led by um, Aaron Advani from the University of Warwick, is really focusing on constraints that individuals face in terms of which subjects they can choose. Um, led, kind of driven by the access to those subjects that they have in schools and how that is um, different across different school types, different areas and so on, and trying to figure out whether intervening in a way that gives them greater exposure to those subjects is in effective in increasing their understanding and enabling them to choose um, those subjects, which can be high return ones like economics. You've mentioned productivity a number of times, Claire, and we have a question in the chat about growth. So how do we measure the impact on growth? So I think given the, the way the project is set up, it's probably an, an easier question. How do we measure the impact on productivity? So how are you measuring productivity in some of those projects? So when we're thinking about individuals, we're often thinking about proxies for productivity um, and in particular the wages that they're getting. So that's obviously not a perfect proxy for productivity um, in a kind of economic theory driven world that would be equivalent to the kind of value that that individual would be giving to a firm. And so you could think about it being representative of the amount of value that they're kind of generating for a firm, their productivity, if you like. We're obviously not in that perfect world in all circumstances, but the kind of how much people are earning is still, I think, a, a, as good as we can get in many cases in the data that we're using, which is largely um, kind of secondary data analysis, often using administrative data sources. Um, so that's really what we're focusing on in that second strand of projects. When we're thinking more about the business ones, it may be that um, Daniel and yourself can add to, to this, but in the data we're using, we'll be thinking about, I guess, indicators of firm performance like um, turnover, profits, um, returns on investment, things like that, that we're trying to measure at the firm level to capture some elements of the firm performance. I think Claire, if for the first set where wages is used as, as proxy, looking within sector becomes really important, doesn't it? Because there's really good evidence that you get to capture more rents depending on which sector that you're in. Yeah, so one of the nice things, so one of the administrative data sources we're using is um, administrative records which link people's education experiences and their um, employment or um, earnings uh, experiences. And a new feature of the data that we'll be able to take advantage of in our project will be information on the sectors where people are working. So, yeah, we def we will be able to account for that in the work that we're doing. Fantastic. And I think you've given a good description as well of what you can do at the firm level. So looking at earnings, looking at returns and also looking at measures of innovation, which we will do for the first project, which is quite traditional in this literature to try to capture productivity. And I think also the point that there's no perfect measure is spot on. So it, it, it's very hard to measure productivity kind of at the macro level or using observational data. I think, Daniel, and I don't know if you want to speak a little bit about this, we can get closer in the experimental setting, but everything becomes much narrower because the task becomes very well defined. 
Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it. So when we bring teams together and we're bringing them, you know, for up to an, for up to an hour, so it's quite a limited amount of time. But really what we want to do is we want to simulate a kind of typical meeting that they'd have in a workplace setting and a typical kind of task. So, you know, a kind of strategic thinking, a little bit of creativity. And really what we're measuring is we're measuring, well, what's, What's the output? How good is the output? And when I say how good is it, how creative is it, and how how much relevant applied value is what they put together? So is it something that's novel, unique, that represents innovation? And is it something that would work? Which is really what we want from a business perspective. And I think that's the nice thing about doing this study with professional workers. So much of what we know about the link between diversity and productivity comes from lab experiments with student populations. And I think we all know that when we get into the workplace, um, the lab doesn't necessarily look like that. So I think by doing it this way and doing it online with real professionals, I think what we're going to see is a little bit more of um, the reality of what's going to drive those innovative and productive solutions. I think the efficacy part is, is really important in this, isn't it? So you can kind of think about what you're doing in the online bit as the kind of gold standard randomized trial. And then when you try to move the lessons into companies, that's really efficacy. And there's going to be some tracking of efficacy as well within the window of the project. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what makes it really exciting, particularly because in this kind of post-pandemic world where we're all work now working hybridly or fully remotely, I think that there hasn't been a lot of focus on online collaboration. And for all of us, we know, and also the science is telling us, that when we work online with people, it is a little bit different to when we're in the room with them. So I think that's one of the really exciting things about this project together with, as Claire has spoken about, the kind of broader look at different diversity characteristics, such as socioeconomic status, and um, also just testing these kind of small steps of what is really going to bring the benefits of diversity into fruition in that workplace environment. And I think if we look at the future of work, there there is more of a trend going towards kind of remote first type models. So it sounds incredibly relevant. Belton, you've heard a lot. So I think you've heard about different kinks across the, the talent pipeline from the very, very early school ages all the way down to the kind of when you're interviewing for a job and when you're actually working with your colleagues. And you've also heard it that there's going to be focus on groups of individuals who are not normally studied. Um, so neurotypical individuals, um, trans men and trans women, for example. I'm wondering, are you convinced that this is actually worthwhile? Is there anything missing? Are there any questions that you would like to ask the panel? Well, I guess before I respond to that, there are a few questions that I'd like to ask yeah. the panel because I, I think it would, would help me in understanding a little bit more. So, Aliyah, the first one is really for you. And when you were kind of talking about studying the individuals and asking them questions about themselves, one of the things I thought about is what about confidence? I think confidence sometimes does have a direct impact on productivity, and it might be interesting to see if people from non-diverse backgrounds might have a different confidence level than people who don't come from those non-diverse backgrounds. And I guess, is that anything that you're almost looking at to almost challenge what you're hearing from people to go deeper than just what they're telling you? Yeah, thank you, Belton, for that question. Um, so we're pretty early on in the interviews. And what I would say is I think we are keeping an eye on these kind of factors of confidence and, and so on that we know matter in the workplace. I think from the very initial stuff that 
uh, data that we do have from the interviews, what seems to be happening is that um, the individuals that we are speaking with are also talking about like a contextual situation. So it's they're focusing more on the situation, like on the people who are around them, on the um, sort of situations that they were thrust into um, as kind of shaping, you know, when they felt like they were not productive versus when they felt they were productive. That's what seems to be coming up more. And those are things we can kind of change through policies later on. Like those are things we can develop policies for, because that's really about how organizations function. It's not about, you know, kind of improving an individual's confidence level and so on. So, I mean, that to me, I think it's a good sign right now that we're seeing these more structural issues coming to the fore a little bit more. No, that's great. And I think the next question I had just jotted down, it was for you, Claire, and I think it builds off of what you just spoke to as well, about really trying to drive, I guess, changes in the policies that organizations are implementing. And I know, for example, when I did Prime City, I worked with a lot of law firms, and they were all trying to increase ethnic minorities within themselves. And they then created the requirement to interview X number of diverse candidates coming into the pipeline, and they shouted about how great that was that they implemented that, but look forward three, four years, nothing had changed. Um, so I think it's going to be really interesting to see some of those policy-driven insights. And as you're doing your research, are you going to be, I guess, providing recommendations based on that? Or are you going to be just providing kind of that objective research with the findings that you've articulated? Thanks for the question. Um, no, I think we're definitely going to be trying to provide recommendations. Um, so obviously, we'll be working directly with a rel- you know, relatively small number of businesses, but hopefully large businesses across a range of sectors that will allow us to represent or get a good handle on the different types of strategies that are taken by firms in different sectors and so on. In the the work with those companies, we will definitely be, I guess, providing personalised recommendations to them of how they could potentially change their own uh, recruitment and progression and performance management approaches in ways that could potentially support um, greater diversity at different stages. But we'll also be looking to try and draw more general conclusions from what we're learning across um, those different firms that could be relevant for big firms in sectors that we haven't covered or indeed small firms in similar sectors that could be thinking about the same kinds of issues as you as you highlighted earlier. So then we'll definitely be looking to try and um, make specific recommendations where we can, but of course, based on the findings from the, the research. I'm interested in your question on confidence, Belton, because for me, confidence can be endogenous. So if all of us were to imagine for a second moving teams and being in a place where every other member of that team had very close affinity with each other, and we had a very big social distance from those people, and we walk into the room, and now we're expected to speak up about issues, put our hands up for opportunities, stand in front of the room and be extraordinarily confident. I think some people in the audience, by the way, will identify with being in that situation every day, but I think every human being in that situation, particularly if the group weren't welcoming and they didn't have inclusive leadership in the qualitative interviews, and they're they're giving us these contexts where they weren't welcomed and they were ostracized and they were isolated and what that actually did to their confidence. And it's very hard to disentangle then because we haven't met them, you know, 10 years before. And it's very hard to disentangle the damage that that isolation has done to them. We do actually want somebody from a very different culture with huge socially distanced to walk into the room and say, actually, you've done that wrong or this isn't the way to do it or, or this is a new perspective. So always with confidence, 
I remind people that, you know, the person who puts their hand up for the opportunity, the correlation between competence is actually close to zero. That doesn't mean that they have no competence, but it just means that there's no difference between them and the person who's not putting up their hand. So it always worries me when we go into confidence, because I know myself, I can be confident in some situations like talking to lovely people like you. But in the example that I gave where you're in a team and you're isolated, you would shrink back. I think it's a natural human reaction. Um, but sorry, I, I was really enjoying your question. So go ahead. You had one for Daniel. No, I, I guess I just had one to respond to your question that you asked me now, I guess. And the last one was really about intention. So I think one of the things organizations sometimes focus on when they talk about diversity is how can we focus on this topic or this topic or this topic? And they're so focused on trying to hit the right topics that we forget about the intention behind what we're going to, what we'd like to change. Yeah. Um, and I think one really great way of thinking about it is I think when you hear LGBT plus, right, there's LGBTQIA. And I get asked a lot of the time, why are you adding these additional letters? Like, like don't we have enough? It's getting confusing. And, and I challenge people to say, let's stop thinking that way. Let's stop thinking, why are you adding those letters? And let's start asking people, why does a group of people fight so hard to have that letter added? Because it changes how you are interpreting that question. And I think when, we, when it comes to diversity, it's the same thing. It's not how do we get more women in the workplace? It's really focused on how do we create a more inclusive culture in that way. So I think what you're doing is fantastic because it's going to help to add more validity to the conversation about diversity in general without having to focus on a specific topic, but really focus on the intention behind what we're really trying to change. And I have to say the, the, the pushback against the additions I've never understood, because if you, if you frame it the other way, it doesn't cost a person who's not involved anything to have those letters that are added and, and it allows people feel included when they haven't felt included before so the pushback I struggle with to be honest but I think that's a an absolutely great point and I think related actually to what we're talking about was the next question that I wanted to ask and I, I'll put this to the group and then I'll go to the audience for questions don't beliefs play a role in the link between diversity and productivity so again if as a thought experiment if you imagine yourself with a leader who really believes that diversity is actually good for business and it's good for the clients and you're working with them, you could imagine that you will then get a chance to be productive because your voice is ultimately going to get heard. On the other hand, if you're in a place where the, the, the people who are at the top of the organization or the person who's in front of you, who's leading you, doesn't believe in that and doesn't believe that it's actually necessary, you're probably going to find it harder to get heard. So kind of the role of beliefs in this conversation, does anybody want to take that? Claire, please. So I think it really builds on some of the points that we've already heard this morning from Aliyah and Belton and yourself about the role that the environment can play in people's experiences. So there's definitely literature that says there are a kind of underlying differences in people's beliefs in their own ability or in their belief to kind of control the outcome in their lives and so on and so forth. So there probably is an underlying level of belief or confidence from the individual perspective that may be able to support in certain circumstances. But we also know that the beliefs of others can matter for your own outcomes. We see it in the kind of research that I've often been focused on, which is about the role of parents' beliefs in, in influencing their children's outcomes. Um, so it feels entirely plausible given the kind of perspectives we heard about um, in the interviews from Aliyah and um, the kind of scenarios where you just, uh, which you just mentioned, which says that really the kind of 
inclusivity of your manager or the in environment that they are creating for you in the workplace is going to matter a lot for um, an individual's own confidence and beliefs, but also hopefully their productivity. So I think definitely, hopefully the work we'll be able to um, produce will really show how we can generate the kinds of environments where people do feel supported and provide suggestions for how managers can kind of engender that kind of perspective. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super-rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. So you can imagine over time as well that this kind of feedback cycle that if you give the evidence, people start believing it more, they start taking the actions, the actions will have even bigger impacts and that over time you'll see the kind of big productivity impacts that we might want to see. Um, Alia, any other thoughts? Yeah, I mean, uh, so great. This is a really excellent question about beliefs, but I feel like Claire covered it. I want to go back to a comment that Belton made about, which I thought was uh, such an important comment about, you know, why people are fighting to have that letter included. And I just want to, this should be obvious, but I just want to emphasize that, you know, for our audience as well, that these are not categories, like when you were thinking about diverse individuals, including in um, the interviews, these are not random categories that we've picked. These are not faddish categories. The, the idea is that these are experiences and these are identities that really matter in the workplace. We have a good amount of research on gender and race. We have some research on sexual orientations on the experience of trans men, trans women, and so on. Some, not an extensive amount. And part of what this research is doing, this project is doing, it's adding to that kind of body of work by showing how diversity and productivity are linked. Yeah, I think the categories that, that we have in place are really important because they have very real workplace consequences for people's experiences. So just to kind of emphasize that, which I think is implicit for all of us, I'm just not sure that the audience necessarily knows that. It's a really great point. It's a really great point. Belton, I think you were going to say something. Yeah, I was just going to add on to what Claire had said in relation to the belief and the impact of, of people in the role. One really interesting statistic I, I use a lot um, is a McKinsey report that was studying um, LGBT people, and it said 80% of senior executives are currently out at work, yet just 30% of junior employees are. And I think that has heavily to do with the belief structure that you have when you enter an organization, how that changes as you become more senior. Now, the challenge with some organizations is that if you have a CEO and a head of HR and a DEI team and the employee network leads, we're all at the top of the organization and they feel that they live in an 80% world. You forget that there's so many people out there in that 30%. So it's not just about how do we make sure that the company has the right policies and structures in place. It's how do you really get that permeated through the organization. So some of the people who are most, who have the lowest belief, that organization can step in to help elevate um, that, that belief system on their behalf. I think that's a great point. And I think, you know, SMEs are going to be very heterogeneous. I think because of the way the world is set up, the large organizations have the policies in place, but whether they're actually working and whether people are, are, are implementing them, particularly at the mid-level management, which is where the, the younger colleagues who, who people meet when they come in, in the door, I think there's very, very varied experiences. So you see all these microcultures picking up um, within, within large organizations. So I have a question for you, Alia. So it's, do you think it's likely that the qualitative research may identify how people conceptualize their own skills and what this means from productivity, both at an individual and organizational level? 
So I think that that's a great question. I'm going to go back to your answer, Grace, earlier, where you said, you know, when you get asked the question about confidence, you're sort of want to make people focus on the context. And I think that's what we're going to learn from in, about in the uh, qualitative interviews, about the kind of context that people are in when they're being when they're productive and when they're not able to be productive. And I think knowing that context, knowing who's around them, who's enabling them, who's kind of uh, restraining them, what kind of um, tasks they're asked to do, whether these are actually matching with their job roles and their you know, job profiles or not, I think that's what we're going to learn. Um, so I think less about skills and more about the context in which uh, these workplace processes unfold. And I have a hunch that I, I'll put out there now because I'm very excited about this project because I think it's the one where we can meet as many people who are, are as willing to talk to us. So hopefully we'll be able to get at so many aspects of diversity. And I think in the end, there'll be lots of overlap between what people want in the workplace. And I always talk about opportunities, visibility and voice. And I think fundamentally, everybody comes to work wanting opportunities, voice and visibility, and not to be rejected, not to be forced to conform. And I feel that a lot of what we're going to find is going to be common across colleagues, regardless of um, their aspects of visible and invisible diversity. There will be some things that are different, but I think that there will actually be a lot in common as well. So I'm, I'm really excited to see the punchline, just how much overlap there is. And how much of this is, a, is is really about inclusion and setting it up that everybody is included and we move away from having in-groups and out-groups in the workplace that that's tolerated. So so for me, thank you, Jasmine, by the way, for that question. It was a really, a really great one. Um, Patricia, you're asking me a very simple question. So could you please repeat the title and the author of the book that I mentioned at the first? And this is by um, Erica Brodnock. She's an amazing colleague at the Inclusion Initiative and it's called Better Venture. And again, for people who weren't here at the beginning, it really talks about what the obstacles are for um, underrepresented talent, um, accessing opportunities and, and entrepreneurship and really, you know, removing the barriers for um, black talent and women, which is which is definitely worth definitely worth reading. So, Erica, you've got two plugs for me today coming up to International Women's Day. <laughs> so, um, Milan, um, we often talk about diversity, but diversity without inclusion won't necessarily lead to the best results. While we can measure diversity through self-ID, which is on its own, is not always the easiest as it relies on employees self-identifying, which requires trust. How do you aim to measure levels of inclusion? And then on top of it, productivity related to DNI. So I think Ali has spoken very well about how we're going to be capturing the context and the situation that people find them in as described by themselves. Um, Daniel, do you want to say something about how inclusion can be measured in the experiments? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So I think there's I think there's a number of ways that we can look at uh, inclusion and related measures. One is simply just asking people once they've participated in the experiment, well, how did they feel in terms of the level of inclusion when they were in the team? We can also ask about, you know, if they're in a team where there's a leader, did they feel included by their leader? And then you've got other measures which are related but not exactly the same so did they feel a level of psychological safety when they were there or did they feel like they were being given the time and space to think through what they need to think through or to talk through what they want to talk through or have their ideas heard and I think um, these kind of questions are really important to people's experience once they've come out of a task we want to get them while they're while they've just completed while it's fresh and really understand well, what was going on for them when they were in it. And I think by doing that, you know, we really can start to put a measure around inclusion. 
But I will add, so Daniel has much more faith in people's self-reports than I do. So the other thing that we're going to look at are, is the behaviours during the interactions and how inclusive people actually are. So uh, how, how much they're kind of probing other people to come into the conversation, how much they're leading with curiosity. So the two together, and actually I hadn't thought about this before, but it, it allows us say what different variation you can actually explain from the self-report versus the behavioral. But the two together, I think in the experiments is, is a really good way to measure inclusion. And then to tell you a little bit of a flavor um, about a project projects that we're not discussing today, but is really trying to get to the heart of inclusion. We're trying to measure inclusion using data that sits outside the firms. So employee reviews, um, news feeds, um, Twitter, what people are actually saying about, about the company on Twitter and basically gathering all that data and putting sentiment analysis to it and figuring out whether or not that has actually a signal to some of the productivity markers that Claire has already described. So things like earnings, um, innovation. So we fully recognize, I think, that inclusion is a, an aspect of culture that's quite latent and that is hard to measure. But we do think that there are these kind of proxies, situational factors, um, what people actually say about them being included, what others say who are observing the firms, people's behaviors that will allow us proxy inclusion. Um, and, you know, again, given the academic side of it, we will be very, very thoughtful about how we write up and how much certainty we um, place in what these measures are actually capturing. Claire, did I miss anything from um, some of the other work? No, I don't think so. I think um, the projects that you're working on are, are, are really able to capture those measures in a much more active way than we'll be able to in some of the things that we're focusing on. And while I have you, there's a question for Jamelia. So she's asking about wages. So isn't wages especially a problematic measure of productivity in the study, given we know that there is a wage gap between ethnicity and gender, for example? Yeah, I think that's a that's a good point. I mean, some of the things that we can do is think about um, aggregating across individuals from different backgrounds. We can think about a kind of baseline count, you know, baseline what, what's the kind of least diverse individual you could possibly think about and think about the wages or earnings that they're receiving and using, using that as a benchmark from which to kind of capture which parts we think might be generated by differences in gender or ethnicity and which part of the wages do we think might be generated by um, some of the factors that we're going to be interested in, like working near diverse working near more or less um, skilled colleagues or um, you know, other aspects like that. So I think it's it's a really good question and it's definitely something we'll be thinking much more about as we kind of get embroiled in the research. But we've got we've we've done some initial thinking about the kinds of strategies we might take to kind of account for that. So basically, Claire, what you're saying is that there's going to be some work done to decompose the aspects of wages that are down to merit versus down to other characteristics like gender and ethnicity, which can be handled in standard regression once the characteristics are observable. Yeah, that kind of idea, exactly. Great. Could I ask a follow-up question to Claire <laughs> um, in relation to that? So one of the things I've heard New York is doing is actually creating a policy that's going to require from November all of their jobs to be advertised with realistic ranges, which is going to have huge implications across the business sector. Um, and, and I guess thinking through that question, do you think that potential process could be leveraged in some way to kind of assess people who are applying and, and things like that and some of the research you're doing? So the idea is that they'll publish kind of salary ranges for people who are working in those particular positions. I mean, I think I can't I can't remember who made the point earlier. It, it, it may I think it was yourself, but the transparency is the key to a lot of this. I mean, obviously, we're in a 
a kind of British society, particularly, I guess, where people are reversed to talking about money and how much we earn and so on. But I guess that is uh, problematic in terms of understanding where your salary might sit in relation to your colleagues with different characteristics. So one of the things that has been clear is that um, the kind of auditing process that was brought in whereby large companies have to report their gender pay gaps has seen some moves towards greater equality, albeit by holding back the wages of men as opposed to accelerating those of women. But I think shining that spotlight on, um, you know, gaps across a greater range of characteristics could be helpful for exactly the kind of reasons that you're talking about. So there is a question I'm going to try to answer first, and then Ali, I might ask you to, to help out also. So the question is, we live in a service economy where leisure and entertainment are major sectors of economic activity. Please explain to me how the productivity of a Mozart chamber orchestra or a Premier League football team can be raised. How does a more diverse orchestra increase productivity? Do they simply play the music faster? You could apply the same thinking to any other major industry in an aging society. Care, how do we increase the productivity of carers? So when I saw this question, it really reminded me of Claudia Golden's um, experiments of orchestras, where they look at uh, the hiring of orchestras in the 80s versus the 90s. In the 90s, they brought in these kind of blind auditions. And what they found was once they blinded the audition and you couldn't see whether the person was a man or a woman, women were much more likely to get hired. And I believe it was an order of 33% more likely. So very, very large impacts in regressions. So my interpretation of that those studies was always that women weren't getting hired previously because they were seen to be women but once it was blinded it, and it was just the music and the attribute of gender wasn't what um, wasn't visible then women did start getting hiring so for me the productivity marker of an orchestra is how beautiful the music is so I feel quite confident given that we have those really kind of credible studies on blind auditions um, to give that response but I think more generally I think Alia if, if you want to um, kind of answer the question how do we kind of why do we always assume that we're going to raise productivity if we add diversity into organizations or into sectors, for example, the care sector? I would agree with you, Grace. I don't think it's about like, you know, playing music faster, for instance, as the question says, I think it's about what kind of musical products you have. And like, you know, you what you raise is the kind of uh, the blinded orchestra study. But I mean, another example of this might be something like Hamilton. Like, you know, we may not have Hamilton if this was like, you know, two decades ago or something, just because of who is allowed to kind of be in these spaces. So what are the sort of musical or whatever creative outputs that we get because we don't have, I mean, like creative industries, for instance, are very not diverse, right? Like they're, these are in the UK, these are generally uh, white spaces. Um, of people from like a very high socioeconomic background, partly because of the insecurity or the kind of low wages it takes to kind of be able to weather that lifestyle for a while. What does that mean for what kind of cultural goods we're and products we're not getting? So I would think of it in terms of that, not necessarily more, but what's the quality yeah. of products? And I think that's what we are missing out on, like on high quality consumption, you know, and and pleasure to get from watching Hamilton or whatever it might be. And I think I think care as well is, is 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 a really great example in the care industry. Care is very personal, so the chances of you finding a match with just one type of person is very very low. But the more diversity that we actually have in in the people who are working in the care industry, the higher the quality of care they're going to be able to give to their patients. Surely, because the chances of them actually matching that quality of care become become much higher. So I think that's a really a really great answer. Um, Daniel, do we want to add anything to that? Yeah, I think uh, the only thing that, that I might add is that 
add is I think getting the right people into the into what right roles is clearly very important. But once they're there and thinking about a care team, for example, um, people of uh, different backgrounds will have completed their training in different places. They'll be bringing different personal experiences and skills. And once they're there together, when you've got that diversity, you've got two things that are going on. One is, is that they're actually able to share those skills and that kind of um, their knowledge and what they know. And the other thing is they're also able to share their social networks as well. And I think that those two things are really important to increasing productivity in teams. So yes, it's getting the right people in, but then it's also once they're in, having that diverse group might have that kind of productivity outcome when they bring those perspectives and networks. Fantastic. And so we have another question. How can we implement DEI measures in a way that improves the outcomes for diverse people in absolute terms? This cannot be assumed. An illustration of potential pitfalls in the recent working paper from Copenhagen Business School um, where the main channel in so, so the, the paper is evidence from Denmark, Canada, and UK document that transparency reforms cause re reduce the gender wage gap, but the main channel is through reducing the growth of male wages and less through increasing female wages. And I guess the the assumption from the person who's asking the question is that there isn't a ratcheting of rate wages for some groups that, that the, the pay gap is because somebody is is low paid rather than others being too high paid and i think that's a debate that we can't close today but it is in some sectors like finance where there's extraordinarily high wages it could be the folk are overpaid and we see in technology at the moment that there's a lot of redundancies for people who were hired during the COVID 19 pandemic and paid very very high wages and one of the theories behind that is that big tech is trying to avoid the ratcheting that happened in finance and bring their pay back in line with the meritocracy. Um, but I think kind of the, the broader question is, is an interesting one. How can we implement DEI measures in a way that improve the outcomes for diverse people in absolute terms? And, and I will add to that, which, which I don't think is intended by the person writing the text, but how do we make sure that if we're focusing on one particular group that we're not crowding out um, outcomes for another? So Claire, do you want to try? <laughs> Thanks for that. Big, big question, very small. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I think it is the gender pay gap um, thing that I mentioned in my previous answer is is, is the, exactly the same kind of um, study that was mentioned by the questioner. Um, it, it's a great question. We need to make sure that we're not making just making people worse off, notwithstanding the example that you gave Grace there, where it could be a kind of legitimate concern to want to do that. I guess it's implementing these policies hand in hand with, with other things that make that more difficult. So I guess businesses will, despite the fact that they might, um, you know, really care about diversity and want to see the best for individuals from diverse backgrounds, there are also incentives that they have upon themselves in terms of profits, returns for shareholders, um, you know, ability to stay operational, etc. So complementing policies like the pay audit things with other things that strengthen the bargaining power or the positions or, or, of people could could work there and I think again you know making sure we're not cherry picking certain groups rather than others so how do we make sure that it's not just gender that people are caring about or how how do we make sure it's not just ethnicity so I guess with those kind of large-scale audit type policies um, you know it might be hard for companies to report along 
dimensions that are ta targeting relatively small um, groups within the population. They might just not have enough people within the company who identify as those as being in those groups or are willing to identify themselves as being in those groups to kind of report on that. But policies that try to improve the um, opportunities for everyone and hopefully therefore disproportionately benefiting those for whom the opportunities are kind of lowest at the moment will help to help to avoid those types of um, cherry picking problems. I fully agree with Claire but one thought that came to my mind was that there might be people who want who want who don't want to identify and I don't think we should be forcing disclosure which which Clara said or that there might be some groups that are just so small within organizations that if they were held in data, the, the person would be identified as the individual very, very easily and the company might not want that. So does that mean that a lot of the onus ultimately comes down then to managers who will know about the individuals that are in their team? They might know things that they're not disclosing, but they'll know, for example, if somebody is falling behind, if somebody is not necessarily kind of keeping up with the pace that you might expect from them. And do things get easier if we maybe it's harder to mobilize managers in this way, but assuming that we can mobilize managers, do some of the problems that we worry about fall away if managers take that responsibility? Yeah, and I think intention, again, is, is a big play there. So I think, number one, if we work on the awareness issue of saying, here's why we're looking to get this information and here's how it benefits you or these groups, people are more inclined to self-identify. I think a lot of times we're saying, here's the capability, now please just fill it out, but it's optional, so it's okay. I think the intent of that organization isn't the genuine we want to drive change. If you say we want to drive change and this data will help us, I think everyone starts to embark on that journey together. And I think that's an altruistic way. So because you're focused on helping your employees and because the end goal is helping, hopefully that culture will, will still extend through the managers and the management team. And so when they're managing their teams, they're already coming from that, that, that viewpoint of how can I better understand the team that I'm working with? And I'll give an example. There's a team, I've worked with someone who I, I guess was struggling, wasn't coming back to me. And then I found out they had a, a personal situation that was quite horrendous happened to them in the past year. And when they told me that, I completely changed my management style with them. Now that's not because of their um, race or gender or sexual orientation. But I think those factors can play a role just like anything. And I think we need to create that culture of managers truly caring about their employees' well-being in the workplace, because that's going to help impact their productivity, whether that's a diversity issue or a non-diversity issue. Fantastic. So we have a very small amount of time left, and I want to give everyone a chance to say kind of final thoughts on the discussion today or something that they might not necessarily have got to say. So, Claire, let me start with you. Final thoughts or any other thing that you would like to add? Um, I think it's been a yeah really interesting discussion. Some of the questions that have been um, raised have really kind of got to the heart of some of the challenges that we're facing in both doing the research, but also kind of translating that into policy and practice. That's been, you know, really helpful to have a discussion about that. Um, in final thoughts, I guess I would say just if there are people on the call who want to participate in the research. As Grace mentioned, there are lots of opportunities to do so. Similarly, if there are people on the call who are just really interested in kind of learning more about the results and so on, I think we've got a mailing list that people can sign up to on the website diversityandproductivity.com. And yeah, we really welcome um, your thoughts and input as we go through.
Yeah. And to add to Claire's sentiment, if you're listening later and it's not live, please do check out www.diversityandproductivity.com and do get involved. Come to the mailing list and you'll find out about all of the opportunities to do that. Um, Daniel, please. Yeah, I'd just like to echo Claire's thanks to um, the audience for their questions, also to the panel. It's been a real pleasure being here. And I'd also really like to, um, yeah, to echo the call. I think everyone in our audience today, they're here because they're passionate about diversity and quantifying the link between diversity and productivity. So please, if you share that enthusiasm, um, and especially if you want your organisation to be part of the research, um, as Grace said, it's really fun. It's really cool stuff. And um, I think, yeah, please get involved, get in touch. Um, and um, yeah, we'll, um, we'll make you a part of it. So thank you, everyone. I love that you've involved me in a statement of cool and fun, Daniel. I feel, I feel quite excited about that today. Belton, please. <laughs> I actually just want to say thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Aaliyah. Thank you, Claire. And thank you, Grace. Your energy and passion is absolutely amazing. I loved hearing everything that's coming down. Um, and I loved hearing about this research. My day job is cybersecurity, but your day jobs are, are really changing the world. And you've dedicated all of your lives to making this world a better place. And I'm so excited hearing all of the things that you're doing as part of this research over the next three years. So um, kudos to you and a, and a huge congratulations to to all of you and thank you. Oh, thank you, Belton. That made me feel really good about myself at two o'clock on this rainy afternoon. Um, Alia, please. Um, just, yeah, thank you to the panelists um, for this lovely discussion and thank you for the audience for asking questions. Just to add on to what Claire said about, I love the question about DEI measures and kind of making sure that there's gains for all rather than not. Um, and I would just say, you know, an obvious answer is collective action. There's a reason why like the layoffs that have happened in, uh, you know, with Twitter and with uh, Google and so on have not happened in the same way in Europe because they can't, because there's labor rights. So, yeah. Yeah, it's a good point. You know, we've moved this event twice for the strikes and the strikes are, you know, pushing for equal pay, pushing against casualization, all very, very important things. So if you can, please don't pass the picket when the strikes are back on next week. And with that, I will go and thank my panel. Thank you, Claire. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Belton. Thank you, Alia for an amazing, amazing, amazing discussion. I am so um, excited to be involved in this project. Everyone in the audience, thank you so much for um, the comments. And again, for all the women celebrating International Women's Day, please enjoy tomorrow. And for all the allies, thank you very much for being behind us. Look forward to seeing you all soon. Bye, everyone. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.